0: Okay, we will not have men's prayer breakfast this month. That sounds really different. Does that sound different to y'all? Yeah, it's louder. A, a little, it's louder. Maybe that's just my voice. Um, anyway, we won't have men's prayer breakfast this month. We will next month. One way or the other, we may go virtual. Everybody, by their. Go go to uh, my recommendation is to go to Whataburger, and to get their uh, sausage, egg and cheese biscuit on a jalapeno cheese biscuit. It's the best. It is the best. I mean, it's better than anything else you can buy for a quick breakfast. But anyhow, um, and then have a Zoom meeting or something. But we're going to start having a series of. A special guests for the men's prayer breakfast that are people who are running for for local and state office for the November election. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about this on Thursday night, but Pam and I were both delegates to what they call the Senate District Meetings, where they choose delegates to go to the state, Republican State Convention. And what I learned from this is so few people participate that if we got a couple of people who wanted to organize things and get people fired up in, in three or four different Bible churches, we could run the state of Texas. That's how few people get involved. We could run it. We could set party platforms. We could, we could write our marching orders. So few are there. It's incredible. It's incredible. And I talked to Wayne House about it the other night. When Back in the 80s when Wayne was at Dallas, he was the president of the Homeschoolers uh, Association in Texas, and they did that. They got a hold of a Democrat playbook, and they organized according to the principles there, and North Texas dominated the Republican, the, the Republican Party, the state party in Texas, uh, for, out, out, out of working off of that same playbook. So... The only reason that we don't have conservatives winning is because conservatives are passive. They're too busy doing whatever it is they're doing, living life, but they're not getting out there and being involved. Anyway, that's my commercial for today. But we're going to start having several speakers who will talk. I learned a lot just going and listening to some of these guys talk about the real mess that's occurred as a result of the Democrats who voted straight party and fired all the all the Republican judges in uh, the city of Houston and Harris County, it's an absolute mess. One guy said, I don't know what's worse, for them to show up or not show up. Most of the time they don't show up, which is probably good, because when they do show up, they make up the law as if that's what it really was. So we'll learn a lot. It'll be really, really good. So that's going to come up. Uh, but this Saturday morning, uh, we have our deacons meeting. At what time, Alan? Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are prepared, walking by the Spirit, enjoying and that fellowship, partnership with God in growing to spiritual maturity. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we have you to come to that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of the crazy things that are going on around the world, in the midst of the COVID virus and all of these other things, we know that you're not surprised, you're not concerned, you have everything under control, and you are working together all things for your future good, for the uh, good of human history, and all will come together as you have planned. And, Father, we pray that we might learn to trust you, to relax even in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of of, uh, chaos, in the midst of uh, panic over different circumstances that may come our way, that we can just relax, claim promises, focus on you, and be a testimony uh, to the angels and to those around us of your marvelous grace. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, help us to understand it to see the implications that are here in this very, very lengthy story related to Absalom's uh, rebellion. We have so much information that's all there to be an example for us. Help us to see these lessons. In Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 19, and we'll review a little bit from last time, and then we're going to uh, cover as much of the chapter as we can. It, it's narrative literature. You don't teach narrative literature like you do epistolary literature or even the Psalms. Uh, it's a very different type of literature. It's just a story, and you can read the story and get the gist of it. The main issue is, what does this mean? Why is this here? And I've said this several times as we've gone through this. When we look at Second Timothy 3, 15, uh, 16, and seventeen, and we read, but that all Scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for co- rebuke, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. Four things. First of all, all Scripture that includes even the genealogies, that includes even those first seven chapters of First Chronicles that everybody skips when they're reading through the Bible every year. I know. I know, because it's just a list of names, and we don't know who those people are unless you take a lot of time to study them, and it's all tracing the line of the sea. Didn't we know that? But we have all these different chapters, some of which just seem so far removed, but Scripture says it's profitable for teaching for reproof, rebuke, telling us you're wrong. I'm amazed at how many Christians can't handle being told they're wrong. That's arrogance. The Bible, t- if, if, you know, I remember when I was a young pastor, somebody said, well, pastor, everybody needs to go home with a smile on their face and feeling encouraged. I said, why? The Bible says that if you say the word of God, you're going to get rebuked. That's not going to feel good. If you go home always feeling good, then your pastor's not doing the job. I don't know if he ever came back to church. But anyway, those are the lessons you learn as a, as a, as a young pastor. But the word of God tells us you're wrong. And then it tells you this is what's right. And then it gives you instruction in how to walk in that way. And so when you come to these long sections, I mean, from chapter 15 through chapter, really into chapter 20, all of this is the outworking of God's discipline on David. And there are lessons here. All of this is mostly narrative. It's telling the story of Absalom's rebellion and how Absalom met his death uh, as a fulfillment of that prophecy of David's discipline that the sword would not depart from the house of David. And so we studied the battle a couple of lessons back in chapter 18 and the leading up to the death of Absalom and then last week we saw this inordinate disrespectful, self-absorbed, self-indulgent expression of David's grief that was an insult to everybody who fought for him, everybody who was willing to make a sacrifice and give their life so that Absalom would be defeated was just insulted by when they heard David's weeping and wailing at his personal pity party over the loss of, of Absalom. And so this gave us some things to talk about last week in terms of, of grief. And now that David has recovered, and he ha- is re- rebuilding his administration. We go through a series of episodes here in chapter 19, and one thing that sort of pulls them all together is we see that David is responding to everyone in out of grace. Now, there's a, another part of this lesson that's important to recognize, and that is that David doesn't do everything right. Remember, when he was leaving when he was leaving Jerusalem, he's headed down the Kidron Valley and he's getting ready to go over the the uh, shoulder of the uh, Mount of Olives and to head down to the, to the Jordan River. And along there he met several groups of people and how he responded to each group had something to do with grace and whether he would pass the test or not. And so he's going to meet different groups and deal with different situations. And again, each one is a test. But David's just like you, and he's just like me. One minute you're grace-oriented and you're humble, and the next minute you're not. And then you then you kind of have to uh, you recover. You go back and forth. And that's what's happening with David a little bit here. And I'll point that out as we go along. But he's really focusing on uh, pulling everything together. So last time we looked at his, his grief and his crying out to God and his cry for Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's all about me, me, me. Got that first person singular pronoun there. My son, my son. And it's all about him. And he cries out that, if, oh, if only I could have died for you. Well, he's heard by all of the people who have sacrificed all of the people who have been willing to go into battle and to die for him. And what they're hearing is, I gave my life for him, and he wants to give it all up so that uh, just to trade off and have Absalom alive and him dead. And so this was just a real insult to everyone. And we talked about uh, the problem with grief sometimes is, is it can hit us and blindside us in some situations, and we have to be mentally prepared before it ever happens. And we mentally prepare ourselves by studying the Word of God and thinking through those scenarios, just like when you're in the military and you're training and training and training in terms of a lot of potential situations you may find yourselves in, how are you going to think? How are you going to respond? What are you going to do? What are your drills going to be? And you practice it over and over and over so that when that happens, you know exactly what to do. You know exactly how you're going to uh, respond to that particular situation. And a lot of times people don't do that. They don't want to think about death. They don't want to think about these horrible things happening. So they put it out of their mind and then it blindsides them and they're just not prepared. And then in, in a worst case scenario, they end up just just caving into grief and self absorption, and to some degree, everybody does that. Our sin natures get get a hold of us at different times, but we know that 's not right, and we have some sort of a pity party, and that can happen with a lot of different uh, situations where there's uh, there 's some sort of of uh, some sort of loss so the king in his grief makes is, is really rejecting the plan of God. And it took the action of, of Joab, who's not exactly a spiritual giant, to recognize the implications of all of this. And he confronts David in verses uh, 5 through 8. And so what I'm going to do is just sort of run through all the different episodes that happened here real quick, and then we'll take them along. So Joab confronts David in verses 5 through 8, and then there is uh, David ends up going out and speaking to the people, and he begins to restore things, and they begin to unify. Uh, But then what's happened is all of the Israelites who were following Absalom have left and gone each man to his tent, which means everybody went home. And then they are asking the question, well, who's the king? What is David? I guess it's David. There's no other option. So David's the king. Well, what's he going to do to us? What's going to happen? Uh, is David really a good king? They, all of those questions and discussions are going on. And what's recorded here in these two verses, verses nine and 10, are basically the positive side of the, of the discussions related to yes, David's a good king. He's taking care of us, fulfilled his responsibilities. And we can unite under him. And so you have the uh, northern kingdom, which is usually what's mentioned, mention, not the northern kingdom, but the, uh, the northern ten tribes, which is usually what's mentioned by, is, what's meant by Israel. You have those northern ten tribes, and they seem to uh, get behind uh, David quicker than Judah. And you're thinking, well, what's going on here? Because Judah is David's tribe. How come they're not getting behind David. Well, because they got behind Absalom, remember David. Uh, Absalom went down to Hebron, and that's where he issued his call to arms to start the revolt against against David. So you have all this this discussion going on that's summarized there, and then David begins to reorganize the uh, his government, his administration, and he has to negotiate with everybody. These are, this is the guts of this whole story. He he could bear a grudge and you'll see that he does in one instance he could bear a grudge he could seek retaliation he could look at you you people you you people in judah you're my tribe why did you go with with absalom and he could he could try to get back at them uh, and uh, but he doesn't do that. He extends an olive branch. He he sends uh, as it were peace negotiators uh, uh, Zadok and Ab- Abiathar down to to talk to the uh, leaders in Judah and say, look, David's not going to try to retaliate or do anything negative. He's welcoming you back with open arms. Come back. So uh, he's working with that and he pulls things together. But underneath, what we learn here is that there's still this sort of 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 split there's some real deep fissures in the in israel between the ten tribes and and uh, judah the second thing that happens in verses in verse 13 is he's going to appoint Amasa, who was absalom's general to be his general to replace joab now that's really interesting because you see what happens, Joab may have been successful in getting David's attention, but David and David responded in humility. But just like you and me, we may respond right one day and the next day going, why did I let him do that? Um, and, and David has other reasons we learn later that he's really upset with uh, Joab over other things, for example, the way he killed Abner. And, you know, now it's Joab, and he's the one who uh, killed uh, Absalom. So he's got some problems there. So what is he going to do? He's going to replace Joab. He's going to fire Joab as his commander-in-chief, and he's going to, or as his commanding general, and he's going to replace him with Amasa, who is Absalom's general. And and that's not going to sit well with Joab. And guess what's going to happen? Yeah, Joab is going to. Is going to take out Amasa just like he took out Abner, and that's going to be uh, the other reason that eventually David is going to tell Solomon after David dies to, that he has to execute uh, Joab. So, so this is an interesting thing because we see David. D- David's going to get back at Joab, but he's he's so he's humble and he's gracious to other enemies, but not so much with Joab. And remember, Joab's his nephew son of Zariah, and Amasa is also a nephew from uh, a, a, another sister. Then there's a restoration with Judah, uh, and then he returns across the Jordan. I think all of this took some time. And that's why when we get into this next uh, sort of episode where Shammai and Zebah come to meet David, that's just sort of introduced as a topical Paragraph in seventeen and eighteen, and then you have a lengthy section on each one. Remember who Ziba was? Ziba is the duplicitous servant of Mephibosheth, and he's lied and he said, "Well, Mephibosheth is really with Absalom, but I left and I brought all these uh, supplies and all this food for you, and you can trust me, but you can't trust Mephibosheth. So give me all of Mephibosheth's land." So he's being duplicitous. We'll get into into that. Uh, a, a little bit more, but that's uh, that's a really interesting uh, interesting s- scenario. So, and we also look at Shimei, and David handles all of this with grief, and he had I mean, excuse me, with grace and with wisdom in how he handles this particular situation. And then we go into the details on Shimei, and then the details on Mephibosheth. And the details on Barzillai, the Gileadite, that takes us up to about verse 39. And then the last three verses, David, after he comes across the Jordan, he does the same thing that the Israelites did when they crossed the Jordan back in Joshua. They crossed the Jordan. The priests go out with the Ark of the Covenant, remember, and the Jordan uh, divides just like the Red Sea did, and every all the Israelites cross over on dry ground, once they get over, they build a rock cairn of 12 stones to commemorate crossing the Jordan, coming into the land. And then where did they go? They went to Gilgal. And that is very important in the history of Israel. So David does the same thing. He crosses the Jordan, and he goes to Gilgal. And there he's going to start dealing with all these tribal divisions. And there's going to be uh, then a, uh, a rebellion that comes up with Sheba in uh, the next chapter in chapter 20, but we won't get any farther than that. But that's just sort of a list of the, of the different things. So David's, in David's confrontation with Joab, Joab comes to the house where the king is living. Notice David's always referred to here as the king. And he said, today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines. This is the first thing he says. You have disgraced, you have shamed all of those who supported you. Everyone who who was willing to give their life for you, you have brought shame on the family. And these people were willing to save the lives of your family. If Absalom had won, Absalom would have killed all your family. He would, have, for sure, he would have killed all of all of the sons, all of his half brothers, because that would prevent them from uh, having another uh, rebellion against him. Uh, he may be uh, maybe Joab's hyperbolic that he was would take out all of his uh, wives as well as his daughters, but he at least would do that with the sons for sure. Maybe the rest is hyperbolic. Maybe not. And and this is really his first point, and what we'll see here is, I'll go back and forth between these slides, is this is the first statement. What we have here is a chiasm. And to remind you of what a chiasm is, that it's when you have a, an arrangement of the events in a text in a way where you'll have a a mirroring of the first two points or three points or four points, and then they're mirrored in the last half, and it sort of points to the middle. And so if you were to draw an X here and then cut the right side of the X off, you would be left with the, the, left, to, the left side of an X. And so the letter X that we see is the letter uh, ki. Sometimes if you were in a Greek fraternity or something, you learn to pronounce it chi, but it's key. And that was the letter X. And so it's called the chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M. And the, in a chiasm, sometimes there are some places in Scripture where you have chiasms where you have 10 points, you know, A-B-C-D-E-F-G-H-I-J, and then it goes back out. And so it always focuses on the, on the middle part. And what's important here is what, what he did is that he loved his enemies and hated his friends. And how did he do that? By uh, expressing his favor of Absalom. So David's shame is mentioned in verse 5, and it's mirrored in the middle with the last statement he makes in the middle of or the end of verse 6, that if Absalom was alive and well and we were all dead, you'd be very happy, David, if we were all dead and Absalom was alive, and that is shameful. So that's how you thats how you see the structure here. So first point is the shame is that all these people would be willing to give their life to protect you and your family, and the way in which you shame them is what's in verse 6. Now, there's a lot of debate in different commentaries in the relationship here but it's very clear that verse 6 describes the means or the manner by which David shamed uh, those who supported him, that you love your enemies and you hate your friends. Now, remember, we've studied this before several times, that if, that if uh, you have this phrase, love and hate, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, And so we have this statement that uh, sounds like God hated Esau. But this is a figure of speech that hate and love when they're used together in the same context indicate that you accept one and you reject the other. Uh, for whatever purpose. And when God said, Jacob, I loved, he's choosing Jacob and his line to be the line of the seed. And he's rejecting that for Esau. He's not saying Esau was an unbeliever. It's not saying Esau was evil. It's not saying God hated Esau. It's that he did not prefer uh, Esau for the line of the blessing. He chose that uh, Jacob would be the line of the blessing. And another uh, example of this is from uh, Genesis where we see the situation uh, where Jacob is married he has two wives because of the duplicity of Laban uh, his uh, his uh, uncle and uh, in genesis twenty nine thirty one we're told when the loss the Lord saw that Leah was unloved earlier a couple of verses later it says that that Jacob loved uh, uh, just mentioned Rachel Jacob loved Rachel so you got love Rachel and you hated Leah but it doesn't translate it hated it's the same word Sané in the Hebrew and so so Genesis twenty nine thirty one should say when the Lord saw that Leah was hated what is it it's that, that Jacob preferred Rachel that's who he wanted to marry in the first place Remember the story and and uh, they got to the wedding and and he's already to get married and and he thinks it's it's Rachel that's there, and so the everything is done, the wedding is completed, and then when he takes the veil off he he you know in Texas we'd call it he bought a pig in a poke, but that probably doesn't be, isn't complimentary. He discovers that it's not Rachel that he's been tricked. The trickster, Jacob, has been out-tricked by his uncle Laban, and he's actually married to Leah. But he's married to Leah, and, and if you read through Genesis 29 around this, this section, verse 31, the interesting thing is he's had two kids by Leah. He doesn't hate her, okay? You don't have multiple children by a wife that you don't like. So he loves Leah, but he he but Rachel is the one he 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 truly loves. So that's the idea here is is that um, um, Joab is saying in that you have preferred your enemies over your friends. You've given this preference. You're just weeping in all of this over over Absalom, who who was going to kill you. He was going to destroy you. How in the world can you do that? And so that's, uh, you've accepted those who had rejected you and you're rejecting those who accepted you. And then in the next line, it says, for you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. In other words, your, your commanders or your troops. You have no regard for your commanders, for your officer corps. You have no regard for your non-commissioned officers and your soldiers. And this is the mirror of what he just said about loving your enemies and hating your friends. That's B prime. You rejected your commanders and officers and soldiers in favor of Absalom. And then the last point he says, If Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. That's a real indictment of David. And then he's going to go on into the the next verse and say, now, now this is harsh. And I'm telling you, when you confront a believer, because that is our responsibility in Scripture, according to uh, Galatians chapter 6, 1, that he who is mature as a believer needs to go to the one who is obviously sinning, and you need to have a private conversation about it. It's not, don't make it public, don't embarrass them, but you need to to restore them, okay? That's the point, is not to rebuke them, but to restore them. But I will tell you, as a pastor, as a believer, that 95% of the time, if that is a friend, that will probably end the relationship, because 95% of the time, uh, there's no humility on the other end. And so, what you see here is that David shows humility, and, and he responds. But then, he's going to nurture a problem with with Joab, and what he's going to do is he's going to fire Joab from his position as commander, and he's going to uh, he's going to reach out in grace to uh, uh, Amasa and make him the general. He's forgiving Amasa. He's he's showing uh, his grace orientation. He's forgiving the commander of the army that was going to kill him and install his son as the, as the king and overthrow his kingdom. So he's reaching out in grace, and that's important. We see we're, right now we're living at a time in many ways not unlike the 1968, 69. The, the riots weren't as widespread, but there's so much anger in various different groups, whites, blacks many others, for many different reasons. There's anger and there is hatred and there's no forgiveness. There are people who are harboring anger and revenge and refuse to forgive historical sins that were horrible sins. That's not Christian. If, As I've said two or three times in the last week, Christians are called to a higher standard. We are not You know, I've had discussions with some people. I said, look, you make a mistake. I am not a Republican per se. I am a biblicist. But in our system, we have to choose and work with the party that is closest to a biblical position. And that's our calling as believers. We have to be involved. And we have to be involved with the group that is closest to biblical standards and hope to elevate it by the fact that we're not going to lower our ideals and our standards to that of everybody else. We have to stand above it. Every leader has to stand above it. We have to stand like an Old Testament prophet in judgment to be able to call out what is wrong, to call what's wrong wrong and what's right right and not just say, well, because they're the person I voted for or they are the party that is closest to what it should be, that I'm going to just wink at any wrongdoing. We we can't do that. Uh, And we have to operate on a principle of grace and forgiveness, and pastors have to teach that to their congregations because if we're not forgiving one another, then we have failed in our spiritual life, and nothing else matters than success in our spiritual life. So then we come to the next section verses 9 and 10 and this is where you see this conversation going on about well uh, what are we going to do about David how are we going to handle this how are we going to uh put him reinstall him as king what is going on here and so uh you know after Joab confronts David David did the right thing, and in verse 8, he he went out, he sat in the gate. All the people came before the king. And the last phrase that we have in verse 8, which I don't have a slide for, is, for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. When you see Israel here, we're talking about Absalom's army. The the, uh, uh, men of Israel had fought for Absalom. That was a different phrase than was the one used for those who fought for David. And so all the people, that's talking about those who followed David, for every one of Israel had fled to his tent. So Absalom's force was basically made up of just all the people who wanted to oust David, and they weren't a professional military organization at all. And David had his elite mercenaries with him, and David... Uh, had men with him who had fought with him for for many, many years, and they were trained, they were disciplined, and all of those things so when the 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 men from Israel left, they went home and they 're probably concerned well, is David going to take uh, vengeance on us and bring his army into all of our towns and villages and and wipe us all out? So this, this is what's going on, and the people are starting to talk among themselves. And in verse 9 we read, Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel. So you have two key words there, and that's the word all. All the people, all the tribes. So that doesn't exclude any tribe. This is, so there's, it's just describing, there's this discussion now, who's going to be the king? Who's going to be the king? And so they talk about what he has done for them. The king has saved us from the hand of our enemies. Now, that's an important verse. I'm going to skip over here, First Samuel 8. First Samuel 8 is the chapter where uh, the leaders of Israel met with Samuel and said, we don't want your, your, your boys to be uh, judges because they're worthless, and we want a king. And Samuel took it personally. And God had to take him aside and say, look, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, because I'm supposed to be the king, and they're rejecting me, and they want to have a king like everybody else, and you need to warn them that these are going to be the problems. And in their discussion, what the leaders of Israel said is that we want to have a king that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, 1 Samuel 8 is one of the most significant chapters for understanding political theory in all of Scripture. It was one of about a dozen main chapters that the founding fathers of the U.S. went to in support of their understanding of the roles and responsibilities of government. And there's two things that they mention here that's the role and responsibility of the king. And it's not the role and responsibility of the government. The king stands for the for the head of, of the federal government in in that case, and so they're supposed to do two things. And they're not supposed to take care of all of this other nonsense that clutters up government, which is what we have today. And the two things are listed here. Number one is that the king may judge us. Okay, we have to have courts. We have to have legislation and the enforcement of legislation uh, to deal with criminality within the country so that we are safe and secure within our country. That's the first category. The first rule of government is to protect the citizens from internal enemies, from terrorists, from gangs, from thugs, from all these other groups, from illegal immigrants that come in to take advantage of us, from uh, people who want to hack your computer and steal your money. It's the role of the federal government to protect us so that we can have a secure uh, and safe environment in which to live. The second thing is to take care of and protect us from foreign enemies, to fight our battles. That's the uh, role and responsibility of the government. Those two things... And we've cluttered it up. That's what the founding fathers understood. That's why they wanted limited government. That's why they wanted to have, um, they understood that was liberty. Liberty was the freedom from a, an over-obsessive federal government that controlled everything in everybody's life. And, and we've forgotten about that. But they would go back to First Samuel 8. First Samuel 8 was often a, quoted and talked about and discussed in the writings and in the literature of the founding fathers, and this gave them their understanding of the limited role uh, limited role of government. So we see this here that, that, that they, they recognize, the people recognize that David fulfilled this. The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. So they're, they're recognizing he's, he's done this. Now, who's talking here? All the people were in dispute. So it's all the people, all the tribes. So this is is everybody in the land is having this discussion. And it says, the king saved us. Who's us? Always have to define and and indicate who your pronouns are. Us are the Israelites. But then that's going to change when you get to 1910. 19, 10. But Absalom... Whom we anointed over us, now the we and the us has changed. Now this is the ones who are speaking who were part of Absalom's rebellion. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? Now this is interesting because it's showing, again, this this division that's going on. Because most of, what what was the name they used to describe the the Israelites who went with Absalom? The men of Israel. Judah was with them as well. But here we're talking mostly, this is the Israel, those who are outside of Judah are the ones who are ready to accept David back. They're ready. And uh, Judah is hesitant, as we'll see in the upcoming verses. So this, this is just a general map that we've looked at several times. We saw that, that Absalom is this red line. He comes up to take Jerusalem from David. David uh, flees, not the red line, rather. David flees. He goes out. The, uh, yell, he's a yellow line going this way. And then Absalom goes on north all the way up past Shechem, and then he circles over. And this is the area up here just off the screen where the battle was. Well, all of this area just south of Jerusalem, Bethlehem is in Judah. So all this area, Hebron is in Judah. That's where Absalom was uh, putting together all of his troops to go against David. All of this southern area down here is is the tribe of Judah. So they are not getting engaged with the other 10 tribes, which is in the center and northern part of Israel, and they're ready to accept David back Uh, back as the king. So there's that debate, and then they began to ask David to come back, but it's a process. David is going to oversee that process of trying to smooth things out so there aren't going to be uh, additional concerns about reprisals and, and revenge. So David commissions the two high priests, Sadok And Abiathar to negotiate his return with Judah. So at this point in Israel's history, there are two high priests. I'm not going to go back over it, but Eli and his sons were were uh, disciplined by God and taken out. And so this is another uh, another side in the descent from uh, Phinehas, the grandson of of of, uh, Moses. Or excuse me, Aaron. So David sends Zadok and Abiathar, the high priest, to negotiate his return with, with, uh, with Judah in verses, uh, verses 11 and 12. So King David sends Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah. So they're on a peace mission. And here's what they're to say. Why are you the last to bring the king back uh, back to his house? Since the words of all Israel, in contrast to Judah since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house. And what did he say? What does David say? You are my brethren. You are my bone and my flesh. I'm of your tribe. We are more closely related than any others. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? So he is extending an olive branch to, to the tribe of Judah, and as a result, Judah will come back uh, to support Israel. Now the uh, Next thing that happens here in verse 13, as part of his reconciliation with Absalom's people, he appoints Absalom's general to be to replace Joab and to be his new commander over, over his army. Now that's being very gracious. All through here we see David uh, being very gracious and very kind to his enemies. That's part of how we should conduct our lives when people have done many things maybe you work in an office maybe you work at a school as a teacher maybe you work with it with some company but there's we work with a lot of unbelievers sometimes i don't don't mean we me i I haven't had to work with unbelievers in 40 years almost Um, so that's been a real real blessing let me tell you But I remember what it was like in all this gossip and slander and backbiting and everything else that goes on inside of a corporate environment. We have to learn to treat people better than they deserve, just as God has treated us better than we deserve. We have to learn to love our enemies. And that's exactly what David is showing here is his love for his enemies. So in verse 13, he asked Amasa to come and be his commanding general. And he says, are you not my bone and my flesh? They were closely related. Amos's mother is David's younger sister. So he's a nephew, just like Joab is a nephew. It's a family affair. So God do so to me, and more also, that's a swearing of an oath that if I let anything happen to you, then God will have the same thing happen to me. God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me, continually in place of Joab. See, and here's where he's getting back at Joab. So, well, you see, David's not like, like most of us. One day we're humble and we're listening to somebody, the next day not so much. The, see, the third thing uh, in terms of David's reorganization here is in verses 14 through 15, which is the restoration With Judah, and then David returns across the Jordan. Once he knows that he's got the 12 tribes organized and on his side, then he comes across the Jordan. I think this takes some time. Uh, This didn't happen overnight. We got messengers going back and forth. That takes time to travel, all these things. The reason I'm pointing that out is that when we get to the point where Mephibosheth comes to David, And he's been accused of going over to Absalom by Ziva. He's going to say, look, Ziva really betrayed me. I was in mourning, and I wouldn't go to the temple. I didn't cut my hair. I didn't trim my nails. You can't fake that. I mean, it takes a while to grow your toenails and your fingernails out. So while all the battles, I think, all took place within a short amount of time, maybe a couple of weeks uh, maybe a month, but certainly not longer and um, but now uh, it 's been a while because Mephibosheth can ha- has grown a, a healthy set of fingernails and toenails, and he looks pretty gnarly hasn 't shaved, and it um, looks like a lot of college kids but anyway so that's that 's going to show up so he 's taken some time and he comes back across the Jordan. So verses 14 and 15 describe this. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah. He was a good motivational speaker. He talked to them, he spoke to them, and he brought things together. And just as the heart of one man, that's just the heart represents uh, usually the thinking in a person. But what this is an idiom for saying that they thought as one. They agreed on everything and they completely reconciled. Uh, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word uh, to the king, return, come back across the Jordan, you and all your servants, we're not going to oppose you, we're on your side now, we have completely reconciled. Verse 15, then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal. This is the place that's located, let me go back to the map, it's located not as far north as Shkem, it's uh, located here. Jericho is right here. It's located north of Jericho in the hill country, somewhere, uh, right in this area. And this was where uh, Israel had entered the land and where they had a had a sacrifice. And this is a covenant renewal place uh, when when Israel first came into the land. So this is an important place where David is going to. Uh, be restored in his uh, relationship with the tribe of Judah. Verse 15, he comes across and the king returned and came to the Jordan. And Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. So that is why they're they're down in, in that area and taking him to Gilgal. What we're seeing here, there's always a lot of debate among certain evangelicals about the applications of the Sermon on the Mount. But as I was thinking through this, this is the example that when Jesus is giving these commands in the Sermon on the Mount, this is nothing new. This is just grace orientation, as I said when we talked through Matthew. The Lord said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. David is showing mercy to his enemies, and, and he brings about this reconciliation. He's not going to have any kind of, uh, uh, any kind of petty retribution. He's not going to uh, bring any problems or vengeance on any of the tribes. He deals with them uh, in mercy even though they have been just a, a few weeks or months before wanted to kill him. Matthew 5, 39, Jesus said, But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, this is a really important verse for today. What does it mean to slap somebody on the cheek? By the way, this is not talking about pacifism. Dan Ingram wrote his master's thesis on the interpretation of this of this verse. And I'll, I'll never forget it, Dan. When Dan was first talking about it, he said, Is this a problem in Israel that everybody was going around slapping everybody else on the cheek? Of course not. It's a figure of speech. And the figure of speech, if if somebody slaps you on the cheek, is somebody has insulted you. Somebody has been derogatory to you. Somebody has shamed you. Somebody has done something. And and you have two options. You can either take offense at it and, and get back at them, or you just ignore it and you forgive them, and you move on. And see, right now, with all this anger and all these displays of hatred and uh, burning down and looting and all of these things that that have taken place here, that just has no place in the Christian, Christian life at all. Christians should abhor that. Now, that's different from a peaceful protest. There are some peaceful things that have happened as well. But unfortunately, it got co-opted very quickly by these uh, very evil groups that want to create chaos in, in our country. And, but Christians should not take offense, should not seek retribution for what they perceive to be an insult from someone else. That's what Matthew 5.39 is saying. Now, David has actually been insulted, but he's not going to hold it against him. He's turning the other cheek. That's what that means. Matthew 5.43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Do good to them. That's what we're seeing David do. He is not holding anything against any of these people. So then we come to the fourth event, which is verses 17 and 18, which simply says there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him. This is um, this with um, Ziba and Shimei. Shimei is verse 16. Um, and Shimei, the son of Gira a Benjamite who was from Baharim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There was a thousand men of Benjamin with him. Now, this is Shimei. Remember, he's the one who was cursing David and throwing rocks at him and calling him all kinds of names and and calling down curses on him because he had destroyed the house of Saul. And he's bringing a thousand Benjamites with him, not to fight David, but to welcome him. This is a time of reconciliation uh, between Shema. And what we'll learn when we get into verse uh, 18b and following is that Shema comes and he seeks forgiveness from David he wants to reconcile he he confesses his sin and David is going to forgive him so we see this as a as a sign of reconciliation here and it's just introduced in these two verses Our three verses, Shemai, the son of Gerah, Benjamin, who was from Baharim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him and Ziba. So there's Shemai and now Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul. So it's all about this division in Israel from the Saulites who had never quite accepted David. And now there's going to be this reconciliation and Ziba the servant of the house of Saul he's actually the servant of Mephibosheth who was the son of Jonathan and remember David had entered into a covenant with Jonathan that that if I become king I'm not going to obliterate any of your children which was typical in the ancient near east that if you became king you wiped out all your competitors and you killed them all and David swears a covenant lo- uh, a covenant oath with Jonathan not to harm any of his children so Ziba is a servant of Mephibosheth, and Ziba comes with his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him, and they go over the Jordan before the king, and then there's a ferry boat that goes across to carry the king's household and to bring them back across the Jordan. So that must have been a magnificent time to see all of those people there and welcoming David back. It was a time of great pomp and circumstance welcoming the king back into Israel. So now let's go to Shemai and see what happens. Uh, this section is from 19, and it starts in 18b, the second part of verse 18. Now Shemai, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. So he waits till he's in the land proper across the Jordan, and then he is going to uh, fall down and bow down before him. Uh, Starts in eighteen b and goes down through verse verse twenty three. Now he's the one who remember he insulted David. Uh, Called him all kinds of names, threw rocks at him, threw rocks at his men. And David said, "It's like David's not sure what's going on, but he thinks that this is the voice of God reminding David that he's brought all this on himself." And he says, Well, maybe he's right, maybe I'm just gonna you know not not survive this rebellion. And so he says, Don't don't harm him, tells his his men, don't fight back, just 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 uh deal with it. Uh and so that's what, what happened. So now we get the flip side. David's coming back and he comes to the king, and in verse nineteen we read Then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on that day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. Just forget what I did. It was all wrong. Uh, Don't take it to heart. And he goes on to say in verse 20, For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. It's pretty clear here. I have sinned. Therefore here I am the first to come today of all the house of Joseph. What's the house of Joseph describe? That's the northern tribes. Joseph had two sons. They were Ephraim, Ephraim and Menashe, Manasseh. And so they are the progenitors Manasseh's one half of that tribe is over on the on the east bank of the Jordan in Transjordan and one half is on the Uh, west bank so but but ephraim was the largest tribe in the north and so all of the northern tribes were often referred to just as as ephraim so the two together make up the house of joseph i'm the first today to come to the house of joseph to to go down to meet my lord the king now here we come up with with dear old abishai these sons of Zariah are quick at the draw. They want to take care of anybody that they don't like, and this is part of their problem. Abishai is the uh, brother of Joab. But Abishai the son of Zariah answered and said Shall not Shemai be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? So he he's he's accusing. Shemai, of cursing the Lord's Mashiach. That's the Hebrew word for, for anointing, the Messiah. And so David, David says in exasperation, how many times does he say this about either uh, Abishai or, or uh, Joab? What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should be adversaries to me today? And see, this is the the Hebrew word for adversary is the word Satan, which is where you know the title for for Satan for Lucifer is is Satan. It means an accuser, uh, someone who is an adversary. You know, he goes about. He's the ad, our adversary, the devil. Revelation tells us. So here we have this situation where uh, David is saying that the sons of Zariah have put themselves in the place of defending David and accusing his enemies. And David says, I didn't ask you to do that. I didn't want you to come forward as as, uh, as someone uh, it, who would stand in my place and accuse my enemies. Uh, who told you to do that? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? This is a great day. It's a celebration. You know, I'm going to forgive my enemies. Why should we try to kill our enemies on this great day when I've come across the Jordan and I'm back in the land. Uh, for do I not know today that I am king over Israel? And so we just see these continued pro- problems with uh, between David and the sons of Zariah. And then we come to the episode with Mephibosheth and, and Ziba. And I think I'm going to wait to talk about this the next time there's a lot of parallel here between this episode with trying to decide who's right. Ziva says, Mephibosheth really had his sympathies with Absalom. That's why he stayed home, even though he's crippled. That's why he stayed home. And, and he talked David into giving him all of Mephibosheth's property, remember? And so now Mephibosheth is going to sh- show up and he say, you know, my loyalty was always with you. See, I, I haven't shaved I haven't cut my toenails or my fingernails all the time. You're gone, which made him unclean. So he he can't go to the temple to worship. And he says, I've I've been mourning ever since you left. So David's got, got a he said, she said situation. And he's got to decide who's telling the truth here. Who's the one who's really loyal to me? And his solution is not unlike that of the situation with Solomon when the two women brought the baby, and his solution is going to mirror or foreshadow Solomon's solution. So we'll we'll look at that when we start up next time. Father, thank you for this example for us of grace, that we need to think how we respond to people, how we react to people, especially those who have uh, hurt us, who have perhaps betrayed us, who have uh, slandered us, who have uh, done different things that may have hurt us, our families, our loved ones, that we need to deal with grace, we need to deal with forgiveness. And that doesn't mean we get romped on and stomped on as uh, people take advantage of us, but it is using your, your love and grace in a real way in our own lives as we deal with others. Father, help us to understand this as we continue to go through these episodes in Samuel. Uh, that are put here to exemplify these things for us, that we might learn to walk as you would have us to walk. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.